Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all of your hops needs. With nitrogen-flushed Mylar and only $5 to ship any amount anywhere in the USA and great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his kilt. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and homebrewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we talk to 25 of the world's best homebrewers and get them to give you their tips, tricks, and secrets. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. Well, and on today's episode, we have a ton of feedback from everybody. Lots of different things, lots of different topics. We have our new charity that we have to announce. We have our Brewer's resolutions that are in the can, including a lot of yours. We have... mm. (laughs) We have so much stuff, I can't remember what all we've got. There is so much to talk about as we're getting ready to kick off a new year that, what the heck, let's fly blind. Trust us, we have a lot of good content for you here in the first episode of 2017. Boy, trust us, those are dangerous words. <laughs> hey, we want to let you know how you can support the podcast. Uh, go to our website, www.experimentalbrew.com. First of all, you can buy autographed books and you can buy t-shirts there, Experimental Brewing t-shirts. Proceeds from those help support the podcast. Also, you can click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to uh, subscribe to Brew Your Own Magazine, or you can click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. You'll get a subscription to Zymergy Magazine and uh, help support this great hobby that we're all engaged in. And finally, you can click on the Patreon link 
to donate whatever amount you like to our charity. For the last six months, our charity has been the uh, Children's Tumor Foundation that supports research into the causes and treatment of pediatric neurofibromatosis. We are ready to make a donation to them and move on to a new charity, and we'll talk a little bit about that coming up. There you go. And yeah, hey, don't forget, buy shirts, buy stuff from Amazon, buy links all over their website. And if you talk to any of our sponsors, if you get anything from any of our great, wonderful sponsors who make this show possible, uh, make sure that you mention that you came to them from us. That's right. So um, we have some listener email, I guess, huh? Yeah, we had a lot of uh, feedback come in. So uh, a couple of things real quick. Uh, the quick tip of the last episode that I talked about with using the cleaner in your kegs to clean out your lines. I told everybody I couldn't remember who it was from and I couldn't find it in my emails. Well, uh, David Beyer reached out to me and said, oh, hey, that was me. Sure enough, there was his email attached to it. Thank you, Google. <laughs> uh, and David's really great. I met him briefly in uh, Baltimore and he was laughing at our insistence on bleeping out all the fucking curse words out of the fucking show. Uh, I think he said, why the hell do you let people curse if you're just going to fucking bleep it? So uh, Because Drew likes to make me work more, that's why. I know. It's so much fun. All right. <laughs> and he also uh, furthered his tip by saying that he uh, actually has now gone to the point where he has a recirculating pump attached to a beer post, and he'll actually attach his lines to that and allow them to recirculate if he really needs to get the crud out. So there you go. Further extension to the quick tip from last week. And cool. other feedback that we got... So uh, Eric Pierce reached out. He said, I'm halfway through the interview at Breakside, and so far I've heard the terms brewmaster, farmhouse, and crush. Balance was used, but doesn't count for obvious reasons. I agree with Drew that some beer is awesome. For instance, I had the opportunity to try Boxer's Revenge by Jester King a few months back. Having my taste buds fall into what seemed like a vast netherworld between beer and wine, it was truly an awesome moment for me. When you discover something completely new you've never known was possible... Or sometimes when you enjoy a beer where the brewer just completely nails a beer style. Sorry, awesome is the perfect word for it. Anything that makes you say, wow, that is the definition of awesome. Is the word overused to the point of being juvenile? You bet. But I've been following the craft beer movement since the 80s, and I continue to be amazed at the creativity and new expressions of flavor that just keep happening. Yes, it is awesome. Would we still be going with this hobby after all these years if it wasn't? Have a great holiday, Eric. What do you think? My whole issue is the use of the word awesome. There are a lot of other words for uh, what Eric is talking about there. Awesome is describing uh, the Grand Canyon and religious experiences. Uh, that's, you know, what can I say? That's that's my awesome opinion. There you go. Well, and I'll agree with Eric. I've had some beers that are just mind-blowing. So, Whatever. It is how it is, and vocabulary is what it is. <laughs> yeah, right. And I'll still be calling you out if I think you're using it wrong. I know. Well, but then again, I'm the one who calls people out for using the word balance, so what the hell. There you go. All right, and then also just wanted to take a brief moment to stop and thank everybody, because uh, over the past two weeks, I've had a number of people reach out via Facebook and email and other channels to offer their condolences for uh, losing Cookie. And um, I really do want to tell everybody that even if I didn't get back in touch with you, I appreciate it. Uh, the recording that you heard was actually the second attempt for me to get through that segment. And boy, Denny will tell you I was a mess the first time through that we did it. Yep. Yep. More of a mess than usual. Yeah. So, but now we do want to take a moment because obviously 
for the last half of 2016, we were supporting the Children's Tumor Foundation, and we've raised a fair bit of money for that, for that, and we'll give you guys the total and everything else. And because of my recent loss and uh, all the questions that we were asking about, you know, whether we go local or national, we've decided that for the first half of the year, our Patreon donations will go to fund a donation in honor of Cookie to the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society, which was the Humane Society where I adopted Cookie six years ago. Uh, they are always in need of money. They do not get money from the National Humane Society. So I appreciate everybody giving their feedback and telling us that this was a worthwhile cause. If you uh, really feel like you need to stay local with your donation, go donate to your own Humane Society. But I really encourage you to uh, use that Patreon link and help us support the San Gabriel Humane Society. They're a great group of people doing great work, and uh, they can use our help. Yeah, and, you know, really, it's for the dogs, and you know how we are about the dogs. Yeah, or do both, you know, support your local Humane Society and the San Gabriel, you know? There's nothing that says you can't do both things. And for the people who donate to the podcast via Patreon, I do want you to know that we are gearing up to tackle the rewards that we promised people in the first half of 2017, which means that, amongst other things, you'll have the ability to get questions into the queue on priority, suggest experiments, have a hangout with us, and be able to talk to Denny and I and actually ask questions. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but <laughs> yeah, you're more than welcome we might to. actually give answers if you ask questions, and that could be dangerous. Right. So, so uh, yeah, Patreon, it's good causes. Speaking of dangerous, you have an announcement. Yeah, so apparently, you know what? We've decided we really hate free time. What little free time we already had. And given the way that this show is now structured, we just want you guys to know that there will be a second show here on Experimental Brewing that will be downloaded every other week when we're not doing the main show. And this new show right now is called The Brew Files, and The Brew Files is going to be a nice, short 30-minute show, we hope, uh, that is deeply, deeply focused on a single brewing topic each episode. So right now we have a couple episodes in the can. They're uh, getting ready to go, uh, covering styles like cream ale or Belgian strong dark ales, covering ingredients, covering different recipes from different brewers, and different tips and techniques. So if you have ideas that you want us to cover in sort of a short-form focus show, feel free to email us at podcast at Experimental Brewing. But I do want you guys to know, when you hear the new show, don't worry, this show is not going away. This show will still be here, it's just now we're going to start alternating so you have even more chance to hear our wonderful voices. That's right, the brew files, the beer is out there. <laughs> all right and now of course we have to get into our our yearly feedback segment what i'm hoping is going to be a tradition last year when we first started this show denny and i sat down and we made a set of five brew years resolutions and we talked a little bit about this in the last episode but i mean i think we did pretty well for the most part yeah, yeah. we did about as well as i think anybody can but this year we decided we wanted to get your brew years resolutions because who wants to hear from us yet again so, Denny, you want to, we got a couple of uh, emails here. We got a couple of folks who uh, phoned in and actually left us messages or recorded something on their phone. So, how are we going to do this, buddy? Uh, let's uh, let's read these uh, emails first, and then we'll get to listen to the phone messages. All right. So, all right. Our first uh, email comes from uh, Brooks. <laughs> our first email comes from Brooks Himauer from Franklin Town, PA. And he says, my brewer's resolution is to keep track of total production for the year. Probably will hit my 
legal quota in May. Love the show. Happy holidays. <laughs> yeah. Kevin Coke wrote in and said, simplification. Yeah, buddy, I can dig that. I'd like to be able to get a better handle on consistency this year. Over the past few years, I've tried dozens of yeasts and specialty malts, so much so that I hardly ever know what is contributing a flavor I like or dislike. I find smash brewing to be dull, so instead I'm just going to limit myself more overall. So I'm scaling down to three yeasts I like, WLP90, Northwest Ale, and Abbey Ale, for all my beers this year with the goal of getting a bit more predictable results. Also, as I work through it, I'm going to try to just keep using the same small set of malts and hops, altogether basically trying to use the same paints from a more limited set to create different beers. And uh, anybody who knows me knows that I am 100% behind you there, Kevin. Okay, and our final email came from uh, Jim Ferrer, who's an Igor. He says, I've got one and only one brewer's resolution. No changes to my brewing equipment. I'm a total gadget nerd. This will be tricky, but I think I can do it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> to me, that kind of thing is obvious. That's right up my alley. I mean, you know, figure out what you got, then add something new. But I'm, I'm not a total gadget nerd, right? Uh, right, but I mean, at the same time, there's so many new toys these days that it's kind of hard to resist. So, good <laughs> yeah, luck, man. Jim. Well, and Denny, we obviously, uh, thanks to the fact that we have a new phone number and people have figured out how to record things on their phone, uh, we actually have a whole bunch of pre-recorded messages from other listeners. Uh, and uh, folks, it's too late to get your brewer's year's resolution in, but uh, coming up soon, we're going to have more questions and answers. And if you want to get a question into the podcast, you can feel free to call us at 626-765-1AL. That's 626 626- Seven six five one A L E, and as we all know, one ale is never enough. Never. So why don't we go ahead and break into those other brew years resolutions? All right, let's listen. Hi, this is Dana Cordes from the Maltos Falcons and from Thousand Oaks Home Brewers, and um, my brew years re- resolution is is twofold. First, I need to brew more. This year, I've brewed hardly anything, and I need to brew a hell of a lot more. My second brew years net resolution is to clean after I've finished using my gear. I have a lot of gear, have big party, and I have a lot of dirty kegs still, and it was two months ago. I need to get out there and clean my stuff when I'm done with it. Uh, is this thing on? Okay. Uh, this is Eric Pierce, and I'm sitting here in the parking lot of my local homebrew shop pondering my brew year's resolutions. Um, my brew year's resolution is to get my crap together. I'm really disorganized. I mean, I don't know where anything is anymore. I got stuff in this box over here, stuff in that box over there, this there. I just it, It's all over the place, and it's gotten insane. Denny talking about being organized and knowing exactly where everything is. Man, I, I want that, and that's, that's my big thing. Also, I want to finish all the projects I started in 2016, like my Keezer. My, uh, I got a this brew stand that has some uh, temperature control electronics and a pump and a filter and uh, I I, <laughs> um, I want to add stuff to my hop yard um, and all this is I have to do I my resolution is to do this in a manner that does not come at the expense of time with my family. Uh, my wife and kids, and also doesn't get in the way of all the domestic projects I really need to be doing around my house. Um, that's all. <laughs> Easy, right? 
<laughs> All right. Happy New Year, you guys. Hey, Denny and Drew. Thanks for the great podcast. Been on board since episode one. This is Jason Hammond, also known as J.M. Hammond on social media. I wanted to give you my Brie Year's resolution. Uh, so far, I've got a couple of things that is going to be. One, rebrewing recipes. No more playing the board. Going to work some stuff in and work it out. I'm going to use barrels more. Learn how to do that right. And I'm going to experiment out on the wacky side with Brett and Bugs. Hope you guys have a great year and end the year great. Cheers. My name is Jeff Daly in Pullman, Washington, and I'm an Igor with Experimental Brewing. My brewer's resolution is to more deliberately and more analytically improve my beer, especially using the results of our Igor experiments. Hey, this is Marshall from Brewlosophy.com. I'm here in Fresno, California. As we approach 2017, I'm thinking about what it is I want to do uh, for the new year, my brew year's resolution. And uh, really, I think with with all of my brewing involving experimentation and uh, kind of the Brewlosophy thing, um, we've got some fun ideas we've been tossing around. The, the Brewlosophy crew and I have been kind of tossing around. So I think... Uh, for me, the, the brew use resolution is to kind of cinch up the crew of guys that I've got working with me, crew of people potentially, and uh, start to implement and maybe even introduce a new project that I'm not going to talk too much about right now, but it will involve the brewing of beer and the sharing of data that comes along with it. And it will be a little bit different than what we're already doing, experiments and the Hop Chronicles. So that's my brew year's resolution for 2017. Hey Drew, hey Denny, Matthew here from Cape Town, South Africa. Just wanted to send you my Brewers resolutions. My first one is to be more water-wise because we have massive droughts here and obviously everyone can do their part to save water and beer takes a lot of water, unfortunately. My second one is to brew more classic English low-gravity styles like milds and bitters, about 35 to 4%. Um, it's cheaper and there's a lot of history in those styles. And my last one is more collaborations with other home brewers and professional brewers just to push the envelope a bit and be more experimental. Hope you have a fantastic festive season and a wonderful new year. Cheers for now. My name is Michael Tonsmeyer, and my brew year's resolution is not to kill anyone with the beer I'm about to brew using what I hope to be juniper from my backyard. Hi, experimental brewers. This is Ross Hughes in Bloomington, Indiana. My brewer's resolution is to brew the same recipe back-to-back at least three times. Got to dial in that new equipment and process. Hey, this is Zach in Baltimore with a new batch of uh, Brew Year's resolutions. I was 50% of my resolutions from last year, so I'm hoping to do a little bit better. Uh, a couple of repeats from last year. I want to drink more homebrew and buy less commercial beer. I want to also attend HomebrewCon in my hometown, Minneapolis, this new year. Uh, new ones, I want to enter more competitions and get more feedback about my brewing. And I also want to perfect a Pilsner. I haven't made one that I actually like to drink yet. My favorite beer is Pilsner Urquell. So that's what I got for 2017. Good luck with all yours, too. Bye. This is Brian West with the Brewer's Resolution recording in the style of Happy New Year by Spike Jones and the City Slickers. Because when my mother-in-law begins to scream and shout about my brewing hobby, there is no doubt. I resolve to stop the boil, and here's why. I prefer to do my hopping when it's dry. This is my Brewer's Resolution. Thank you much. Hi, this is Andy Farkey. My Brewer's resolution is to find creative ways to use homebrewing as a vehicle for science outreach. 
As a paleontologist, I've had some fun this year exploring the prehistory of hops and other brewing ingredients and sharing this information with home brewers and other scientists. My goal for 2017 is to give a public lecture and maybe do a little bit of writing on the intersection between what I do as a scientist and what I do as a home brewer. Hi everyone, Jesse Pringle from Connecticut here, wishing everybody a happy 2017. My brewing resolution for this coming year is to not buy as much equipment as I have in the past. Okay, well, man, there was uh, there's some good stuff there, huh? Yeah, and it's funny to see that there's a lot of the kind of the same things that we've talked about in the past. You know, brewers are kind of plagued with the same sort of problems. Yeah, it is. It's uh, it's interesting, and in some cases, not too surprising, huh? Uh, because we've been through it, or we've heard those stories before. Yeah. Well, and of course, we can't leave the listeners with just their own brewers' resolutions. Because I know that no matter how perfect we may think we are, or at least pretend to be, we have our own. <laughs> speak for yourself. <laughs> well, so I'll, sp- I'll, sp- I'll speak for myself. Yeah, start, man. Uh, my brewer's resolution is I'm going to finally finish the damn Saison yeast project this year. Uh, hey. For those of you. Yeah. If, you, if you're not aware, go look at maltosefalcons.com. I've been trying to complete this Saison yeast guide, but every time I turn around, somebody else is releasing new strains. So I suspect I'm going to have to partner with some brewery to produce a bunch of wort and go and ferment it. <laughs> so, Or just run your zymatic around the clock. Yeah, that would definitely have to be the case. So that's my, my resolution for this year. I want to get the Saison yeast project done because, I frankly, I mean, I love my Saison, but it's kind of cramping my brew style. <laughs> yeah, you know what? And, uh, you know, mainly my resolution should be to actually find time to brew because I I don't, it's embarrassing how long it's been. But I think that I will make it a bit more specific. If you're going to finish the Saison project, I will one way or another finish the American Mild project. Uh, I will either come up with a finished recipe for making a mild with all American ingredients, and I'll even try and do it by session beer day, or I'll declare defeat and go back to drinking nothing but IPA. I somehow don't think that's actually going to be a punishment for you. <laughs> I I think uh, well, I think the punishment should be that you have to make and drink something crushable like a cream ale. Ain't gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, speaking of drinking, what do you think about heading over to the pub and grabbing a beer? It's definitely time. All right, man. Meet you there. We'll be right back. Interested in making wine or mead? Don't settle for lesser yeast. Instead, use Vintner's Harvest. Just ask Tyler Barber from Adventures in Homebrewing, who says, Vintner's Harvest yeast is all I have used for the past four years. I have done several small test batches with Vintner's Harvest, and I really like the MA33 for meads and fruit wines. Vintner's Harvest seems to tailor their yeast strains to the styles of meads and wines the home Vintner is most likely to make. Find Vintner's Harvest yeast wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. We've made our way to the pub. We've ordered a couple beers. Uh, what are you drinking today, Drew? 
Well, because it is the New Year's and it's time to kick things off correctly, you guys may remember I do a annual beer tasting at one of my favorite places called the Stuff Sandwich over in San Gabriel. Uh, it's an awesome place, and this year they gifted me a bottle of EKU 28 from 2008, and boy, is Not it good. bad. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine, man. I just, you know, those strong beers that have been aged are just divine. And that's why I dug into my collection of North Coast Old Stock Ale and pulled out a 2007. Uh, for probably the last 15 years or so, I've been buying one or two a year and putting them aside and just kind of forgetting they're in the back of my fridge. The oldest one I've got left is a 2007. Uh, this is a sipping beer. It's strong. It's malty. It's warming. Uh, it's... Uh, you know, along the same lines as your EKU, and uh, it's it's a good winter beer. Yeah, it's kind of nice to have something warming while it's nice and cold. Yeah, that's right. Cold where you are being, what, like 60? Yeah, that that's about what it is right now. But hey, look, <laughs> hey, the past couple of days it's been down in the 30s, so whatever. Oh, yeah, well, 30s for a low, right? Yeah, overnight. <laughs> yeah, well, that's about that's a that's about to be our high. So uh, you know, I, I don't feel too bad for you. Okay, so uh, what's the news, man? All right, well, so this one came in from uh, Eric Pierce, one of our listeners in Igor, and he was talking about he passed on a story about artificial intelligence in beer. So <laughs> beer can make you artificially think you're intelligent. It can also make you think you're artificially enhance, handsome and witty. But that's right, and can dance, yeah, and play pool or darts. <laughs> but uh, so if you're a nerd like I am, and I'm a professional nerd for a living, you know, it, all the stuff that's all the rage for the past couple of years has been all about big data, analyzing consumer trends and analyzing consumer data that you have coming in to help steer business decisions and everything else. Well, there's a small little company in London called Intelligent X, and I'm going to guess that's not the way they want to have it said but whatever uh, that's how it's spelled <laughs> and they are actually trying to apply big data ai type formulations to the idea of beer recipes so they have four core styles that they're focusing on right now and they have an, an algorithm that is taking both the basics of the style and then consumer feedback that they get via their website from people to redirect and redefine what the, the the beer ultimately is. So changing levels of carbonation, how much alcohol, the bitterness, et cetera, et cetera. And every month, the algorithm generates a new recipe that they then brew. So they're obviously doing this in small batches. But they obviously see this as being just a sort of, oh, this is just one idea of what we can do. We can apply this to coffee or perfume or chocolate or other foodstuffs and, and whatnot. And... I don't know. I get it. I understand the idea. But at the same time, it seems like ultimately, if you do that, you kind of move to a mediocre middle. Yeah, I, I mean, I have pretty much the same feeling. I mean, it, it's interesting. I will reserve judgment until uh, I see what comes out the other side. But I can't actually see why this would be better than a human making those same kinds of judgment calls. Well, and even worse in some ways, I think it's that now you have 
sort of, it, it's a blandification, right? I mean, look at like what happened with American beer, where it was all market driven uh, until the rise of the craft brew, and it was all market driven. What that drive to? That drove to a very bland middle. So I can't imagine yeah. a computer being any better at it if they're taking consumer feedback. Well, no, and that's and that's the thing. So is it a question of they they think the computer's going to be better at it, or is it just a curiosity? Can the computer be as good as a human? Don't know, but no, it's it's interesting because I mean at the same time you remember IBM's Watson, you know, the big sure. artificial intelligence thing that they had played Jeopardy and kicked everybody's butt. Right. Uh, they eventually decided, okay, well that, that's great, but let's go and put Watson up against the idea of making recipes. And so they fed Watson a bunch of information about different, a bunch of different culinary things, and Watson failed horribly at that idea. So <laughs> I don't. I mean, this is obviously more yeah. focused, and it's a different sort of thing. But yeah, I don't know. I, I I get a little strange at the idea that the more democratization, the more that you're listening to the customers, the less room that you leave for idiosyncratic brilliance. Shall we say? Yeah. Well, and I I think I think there has to be a balance between the two. I mean, you know. Uh, if you if you put out something like like your beer, you won't find any customers who want to really drink it. So you need to you need to take customer preferences into account. But at the same time, you need your own input uh, because maybe you know things that the customers don't. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say that I could build a business on my saisons, but that's it. But yeah, that's yeah true. there you yeah, go. I mean, it's, it's, the computers are trying to come for your recipe formulation. Yeah, right. Well, we'll see where it goes, man. You yeah. know, I, I think it, it may just end up being a, an interesting curiosity. But uh, yeah, I mean, to me, the, to me, it's just the the technique and the idea of like, oh, hey, can we do something with the customer data? It's an interesting startup challenge, but I can't really see it, you know, becoming the all being thing. Yeah, right. So, what else you got for us today? Uh, all right. Well, I think uh, the other big one that I saw this uh, past couple of weeks has been Sierra Nevada uh, announced that they've done a endowment for the University of California at Davis for a brewing chair uh, to the tune of like $2 million. And yeah. this is huge. It, yeah, it, it is. It is really cool. And it just makes me love Sierra Nevada all that much more. Um, no matter what you think of their beers, and I've think that they make some damn fine beers but you have to really uh, respect their commitment to the community the environment and just you know people in general you know that mm -hmm. it's a it's a really great company for that uh, well and i think one of the things that's sort of not so well understood if you're not inside the the world of beer education is so UC Davis has had for a long time a chair, a professorship sponsored by Anheuser-Busch. Uh, and I don't know the status of that after the InBev uh, purchase, but I assume it's still going. But one of the things about that is very much that all the beer science and beer education that's being you know, sort of funded in part by things like Anheuser-Busch or Heineken or Carlsberg or any of these other guys has all been focused on that sort of brewing style, that sort of pale lager thing, with the other techniques that are out there that are being used by craft brewers being less studied. Because, honestly, there aren't that many craft breweries that have money sitting around to be able to endow or offer grants to study that information. So, 
right. Sierra Nevada is actually really kind of stepping up here. And this is also partially a thing that's good because one of the concerns with the ABI purchase a couple of years ago was that they would start cutting back on money they were spending on research, and they have. So less research is coming into the industry from Anheuser-Busch for things like studying yeast and hops and other different uh, other different techniques that we would care about. So Sierra Nevada stepping up and offering this money is actually kind of a cool a cool thing. Yeah, you know, and, and I didn't realize that AB had cut back. Yeah, uh, particularly, if I remember correctly, the primary impact that, that we've seen it in has been in hop, uh, hop growth and research. But, of course, the market's taken off in, in other ways in that realm. But that was right. a really big concern and because uh, uh, InBev is not exactly known for spending money on things they consider less important. Right, right. Okay, man. Well, that's, uh, that's some interesting news in the brewing world. And I think it's about time we finish up these beers and head over to the library, huh? I believe so. So uh, I guess we'll head over to the library and uh, talk about some new work put out by our friend and homebrew all-star, Lars Marius Garshall. We'll be right back. Y-Yeast is collaborating with homebrew icons and top-rated hobby podcasters, Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham, to bring you the Y-Yeast private collection strains for 2017. We're kicking off the year with some of our favorite British-style strains in honor of the Session Beer Project founded by Lou Bryson and Session Beer Day on April 7th in order to popularize and support the brewing and enjoyment of Session Beers. Beers that are 4.5% alcohol or less and crafted for easy drinking without compromising flavor. Look for Y-East's 1026 British Cask Ale, 1768 English Special Bitter, and 1882 Thames Valley Ale 2, available January through March. We've made our way over to the library, leaving those delicious beers behind. And uh, we're going to be talking about a new blog post by Lars Marius Garshall from Norway. Uh, we we kind of call him the Alan Lomax of beer because he does a lot of work in terms of uh, historical recreation and study of the way beer has been made in uh, Norway and Northern Europe, right? Yeah, and so this is really kind of cool. But Lars went and he got a, a whole bunch, like I think 181 different responses from brewers all around Norway and actually started to take things apart and, and break it down to try and understand how techniques are sort of localized. Because remember, a lot of this farmhouse brewing tradition that he's finding is really hand down, handed down generation to generation, family to family. And this whole new blog post that they put together based on these responses they got, actually show some really interesting regional differences where, you know, down in Southern Norway, you've got a couple of different uh, techniques that are there. And then you've got an area where it's mixed over in the East. And then as you go further North, you're starting to see things where, oh, here they only boil the wort. Here it's all raw ale, so none of it's boiled. And the other right. part is where the mash itself is actually boiled. And so he, he broke this down to try and figure out, okay, what are these different techniques and different practices 
And it's really kind of cool. Yeah. And what's really interesting, too, is he does it by area. So it really shows the, the cultural influences on, uh, on brewing. And again, keep in mind that he's looking mainly at people who brew beer at home. He's not looking at uh, big breweries and stuff like that. He's looking at the Norwegian tradition of people brewing their own beer. And it's interesting how, you know, in one particular area, people tend to follow the same kinds of practices which have been passed on for generations and generations. And in another area, it'll be totally different. I mean, you have the, the raw ale area right next to the boiled wort area. Uh, well, and, and talking about, oh, well, that's because there's a giant glacier here. Or, you know, it's, it's like, oh. Yeah, right. But because people are isolated by those kinds of geographic features, they may not uh, get information from somebody who lives relatively close by, but on the other side of the glacier. Uh, one of the interesting uh, things that I, I liked about his study was he has an area where he defines the practices as bizarre. Right. And hey, you know, look, who's to say, you know, if bizarre is bizarre, it's just different. <laughs> Some people, some people think that uh, clam chowder saison is bizarre. Well, they'd be right. That was very purposely yeah, bizarre. Um, <laughs> but no, to, to me, what I what I really dig is the way that Lars is going in and really actually kind of doing research. And he's obviously paired up with uh, Norwegian universities now to do some of this. And it's just really coming through with some really really cool uh, kind of ways things are developing and now of course we have some things like omega lab has uh, some of the yeast strains that are used in these particular practices but i don't know how practical all the information is but still very cool and hopefully can serve as a real uh, interesting inspiration for all the brewers out there to try something a little different yeah definitely so and uh, even if it's not an inspiration for you to try it yourself it's really fascinating material to read uh, I really like this guy's stuff. We will post a link to this particular article, his entire blog, and he's got a book or two out, too, that uh, you should keep your eyes open for if you can read Norwegian, because yeah. I don't believe they've been translated. No, I'm, I'm really hoping that we'll get an English translation before too long, but, you know, I'm not holding my breath for it yet. Yeah, right. So, Okay, time to wander on. Yep, let's go. All righty, then I guess we'll uh, head over to the brewery where we will talk a little bit about uh, what Wireman Malt has in mind. We'll be back in a second. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. surrounding by gleaming stainless steel and piles of kegs that need to be cleaned. And uh, you have a little bit of info for us about uh, some things Wireman is doing. 
Yeah, so Weyermann is obviously one of the biggest German malting companies that we get to see over here as homebrewers. Almost all the time, if you see me specifying German malt in a recipe, odds are pretty good it's a Weyermann malt. And they just actually announced that they bought another maltster. So they bought the, um, of course, I'm going to butcher this, the uh, Thuringer malts plant. So they, it's a modern brew, a modern malting facility, uh, with you know sort of nice continuous uh, malting arrangements. And what I thought was specifically cool about it, and the reason why I wanted to call it out to people to to watch for, is their primary claim is that they are going to use this new uh, Lozman type uh, germination facility to increase the amount of terroir malts that they're making. Now. What does that mean? You know, the terroir melts. Well, if you don't know the word terroir, it's basically uh, French for the earth. You know, like it's the a culinary term used mostly or a, a viticulture term that literally means like the taste of the earth, right? You know, why, uh, why does a grape from this particular hillside taste different than a grape from that particular hillside, which is how you normally hear it used. But here with Wireman. I believe, and I'm not entirely certain, Denny, maybe you know better than I do, but once they have this online, they're actually looking to expand the amount of like Barca pills that they're making and these other sort of more heritage, uh, lesser or older malts that aren't necessarily produced a lot anymore. Yeah, I don't have any any hard and fast info, but that's kind of the uh, supposition that I see uh, because I know that the Barca Pills has been hugely popular. Uh, I've loved it when I've used it, and so uh, maybe the idea is to be able to ramp up production of it and uh, some of these other malts that were almost gone and now are maybe coming back. Yeah, and so one, I think hopefully we'll see more Barca Pills and maybe we'll see some other fun things coming out of uh, Wireman as well. And if you haven't had a chance yet to play with it, definitely get your hands on some uh, Barca pills because it offers, I don't want to say the word unique because that's too generic, which is ironic. Um, <laughs> here's the thing. I, I, yeah, exactly. I usually think of German and continental Pilsner malts as being very kind of, uh, hay-like and that hay-like character a little bit straw it's a very distinctive flavor right yeah the barca pills the best way i can put it is imagine taking some of those characteristic european uh pills malt type flavors but mixing in sort of the more substantial earthiness the more substantial uh mouthfeel of say a He's offer. floundering he's floundering but no really it's a more substantial sort of grain flavor and i really kind of dig it yeah and and i didn't find when you say more substantial grain flavor it wasn't what i think of as a grainy flavor right. it was it, it was more of a, a rich full flavor you know and i guess that that's just as uh as imprecise as anything else that we've been seeing here. So, the, yeah, the bottom line is go get yourself some, try it, see what you think. Right, and hopefully by them buying this new plant, we're going to be able to see more of this. And who knows? Keep an eye out because I suspect this means that we're going to see more interesting things from Wireman as well. Not that Wireman's been boring. I mean, they make some of my favorite malts. But now, you know, who knows? Maybe this is going to be some more experimentation, some more new things to play with. Yep, yep. We can we can hope, huh? So Indeed. Now it's time to head over to the lab, and uh, we're going to spend a few minutes talking about a macro tasting experiment that we did uh, 
that uh, had some interesting results, huh? Oh, boy. And it's one of my favorite sorts of experiments to make people go, I can't taste what I think I can taste. Okie doke. We're heading for the lab. We'll be right back. We've made it over here to the lab, turned on some Bunsen burners for warmth, and uh, I guess before we get into this, uh, I need to say that uh, we had intended to release the results of our IBU experiment in this episode, but we're really hoping to have a special guest on to talk about him with us, and uh, he wasn't available right now. So we're really going to hope that on the next episode we can do that, and uh, who knows, we may just have to go ahead without him. Uh, so tell us about this uh, this experiment, though, Drew. All right, so one of the questions that we always get, and I think everybody who does triangle testing gets, is just how reliable are tasters? Because you know, some of the stuff that we're putting out there seems to be like, oh, well, you know, it's significant because we trust our tasters doing what they can. So we get a lot of questions about this, and... So what we decided to do was, well, let's test our tasters. And so what we did was we offered to our Igors the ability to do a no-brew experiment. Get out there and uh, do some stuff. And we're still getting results reported in, but we wanted to get something in, into the episode to get people talking about it. And so we said, we laid down a commercial beer tasting challenge. Kind of think of it as the, uh, the Pepsi challenge. Except that it wasn't Pepsi. Right. No, in this particular case, it was Budweiser and Bud Light. So we had our Igors go and grab a panel of tasters and pour them three samples in individually marked cups. Uh, either two of the beers were Budweiser or two of the beers were Bud Light. And we asked the tasters, okay, which one is the different one? And just to remind you, okay, here's the difference between Budweiser and Bud Light. Uh, in most markets, Budweiser is going to be 5% and it's going to be somewhere between 10 to 12 IBUs. Bud Light is going to be 4.2% uh, ABV and closer to 6 IBUs. So they're in kind of the same category, but they are very different beers. Uh, and I, I would always guess if you put them down in front of me, I'd be able to tell you immediately what the difference was. Now, I can also tell you if you put them in clear glasses, you can really tell the difference. But in this particular case, we had tasters put everything in opaque cups and uh, give them to their tasters to tell the difference. Now, Here's the question. And, and? Well, I mean, what would you, it, before you saw the results of this, what would you have said? I would have said that I would have gagged on either one. Well, I know, but do you think you would have been able to tell the difference? I, 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 would, I would have guessed that I would, but, you know, again, when, you know, Fred Eckhart said something very famous about Budweiser, which is it's really difficult to make a beer with that little flavor. Um. So I would say that when you have two beers with so little flavor, it might be more difficult than you think it's going to be to really distinguish between them. Yeah, and so the results were we had three tasting panels come back uh, by the time we're recording this. And like I said, we have more people out there doing this experiment. And of the three panels that we saw, one panel had nine tasters, and they had four people successfully identify the different beer. 
which is not uh, a significant finding. That's a p-value of 0.35, and we usually look for mm-hmm. a p-value of 0.05. And another panel had five tasters, of which only two could successfully identify the different beer. Again, not a significant p-value. And then uh, the panel that I did, I had eight people do it, and I only had two people successfully identify uh, the difference, which again is... A- did, did you do, manage to pick out the one? No, because I was pouring the beers, so I already know, okay. I, I knew what the which one was which, so I couldn't do it myself. Right. So remember, I did not tell anybody what this tasting was about. All we literally did was put glasses down in front of people and said, "All right, of these three beers, which beer is different? They could uh, they could also all be the same. Just indicate which one you think is the the odd bird out if you think one is." And when I did my panel, I didn't have this report in from the other Igors. But when I did my panel, of the eight tasters, like I said, two got it correct. Three actually thought there was no difference, that all three beers were exactly the same. <laughs> right. So, And that's, that's what I would have guessed that the most common response would be, actually. Yeah, and so it was really interesting to watch. And when I finally told people what the experiment was, I got a lot of groans and moans and people uh, complaining about it. And it was really interesting because people were dead set that they should have been able to tell the difference between these two. Now, obviously, what this kind of points to is, okay, well, maybe the problem is that there isn't enough of a difference between Budweiser and Bud Light. They are both fairly mild beers. They are fairly flavorless. Uh, What would happen if we did this with, say, Budweiser and a European Pilsner, or if we did this with... Uh, I think uh, Marshall always jokes that he wants to do one of these tastings where it's, you know, Budweiser versus a porter. Uh, And I would actually say I would like to see the difference between, like, say, a pale ale and an IPA. You know, what's the magical threshold that you have to start to push on before you see an actual taste difference here with the relatively non-professional testers that we're using here? Yeah, you know, and and that's why I'm saying, you know, I'm I'm not real surprised that people couldn't tell the difference between because those two beers are uh, so close to each other. Uh, you know, give me a Bud Light and an IPA, and of course I can tell the difference. But then at that point, it's like, what's the point? Uh, you know, anybody can tell the difference between those. So, uh, but I I do think it says something interesting about when you're looking for very very small differences between beers. And people's ability to perceive them. Yeah, and it almost, it kind of makes you wonder, if we repeat this experiment more, which I actually really do want to do because I want to see a bigger pool of data with this, does this point to the idea that maybe the the testing standards that we're going for, you know, with that 0.05 p-value, are those too stringent for this? You know, I know that's a, yeah. a fairly standard thing in a lot of uh, testing, but it might be that this is, you know, a place where that sort of stringency is a little, a little uncalled for. I don't know. Right. And we're, I mean, the kind of testing we're doing uh, is, is different in both uh, purpose and, and practicality than uh, what a lot of, uh, a lot of people are doing with those P values. So yeah, maybe we need to loosen it up. Maybe we just need to, uh, to realize that we need to take the vagaries of people's taste buds into account when we're looking at very minute differences in beers. Well, and that does bring up an interesting point about some of the calculations. In the past, we've had people uh, talk to us about our aggregation of results and whether or not that's an actual thing that you can do. And so 
there are a couple of people who have reached out to us about this sort of thing. And one of the projects that I have going for the New Year's is to figure out a a more sophisticated statistical picture for how we can take all these multiple trials and get something more out of them that people can trust uh, and see exactly what it all tells us. But like I said, I thought this was interesting, uh, kind of a fun thing to do. Super easy, super quick. Anybody can do this. And part of the reason to use Budweiser and Bud Light, obviously, is just for consistency's sake. Because for all the other faults that you can uh, that you can hand to that company, they do produce a very consistent product. And yep. so it makes it really easy to kind of uh, get some sort of gauge on how effective the tasters are and how effective it is in terms of finding some of these differences. So now, I guess the big question for everybody out there in the audience is, is anybody really surprised by this? Is anybody willing to try and do this themselves and see whether or not they can tell the difference? Because I guarantee you almost everybody, just like with those, the sommelier type stuff where you got the red wine versus the white wine and people can tell the difference or they claim they can blindfolded, they never can. I wonder if, I wonder if some of that's a similar sort of self-deception that's going on here, but I want to know what people think. So email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Let us know if you try this. Uh, let us know what you think about it. And let us know what you think about our statistics or lack of good statistics, depending upon how you want to put it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's head over to the lounge and listen to the final interview from our trip to Portland a couple months ago. We're going to be right back and we'll be talking to Chuck Macaluso from the Oregon Brew Crew. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, beer, beer. We're lounging in the lounge and getting ready to listen to a talk we had with Charles Chuck Macaluso. He's a member of the Oregon Brew Crew who uh, makes some incredible beers and has won some great awards. And he hasn't even been brewing all that long. No, that was kind of the disturbing and amazing part. You know, you can obviously tell, and I think everybody else will be able to tell when you listen to the interview. Uh, Chuck is definitely a man who has seized this hobby by uh, both horns. Uh, yeah, either, either, uh, both horns or, uh, both handles on his beer mug, one or the other. There you go. Just, uh, grab yourself a beer. Let's sit back and, uh, listen to Chuck talk about his brewing evolution and some of his thoughts on, uh, on beer recipes and, uh, processes for making beer. Uh, and by the way, if you want an appropriate beer to drink while you're listening to this interview, uh, you should join us because we were at the Hair of the Dog pub in Portland. So uh, go find yourself a Hair of the Dog beer and, uh, you know, well, sip that one, too. <laughs> That's right. Okay, here's Chuck. Hey, everybody. This is Denny. And Drew is here. I am. Kind of just barely after last night, huh? Yeah, tequila shots after a talk. Bad idea. <laughs> yeah, really. And we were sitting here at the Hair of the Dog in Portland and talking to Chuck Mac. Macaluso? Is Macaluso, that... yes. All right, I got it almost the first time. How are you doing today, Chuck? <laughs> really good, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We, uh, you know, we've seen all these incredible things you've done homebrewing-wise, and we wanted to like talk to you about it. How long have you been brewing? I've been brewing for seven years. Yeah? I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> 
I've been brewing for 20 and having won nearly half the stuff you have, man. That's great. Well, thank you. So, how did you get into brewing? Friends. Friends encouraged me to get into brewing once I found out that I was really into the beer scene here in Portland. Starting attending a lot of the festivals, meeting a lot of the local breweries, the brewers, and uh, yeah, they really encouraged me, so I just took the leap of faith one day. <laughs> and you remember one of the clubs here? Yes, I'm a member of the Orton Brew Crew. Right. And was that helpful in, when you were learning to brew? And, and... When I first started brewing, I did not join the club. It took me about a year to get engaged. Yeah. Um, I was a little hesitant, really excited and happy I've done that, that I have been part of the club for these last few years. Mm -hmm. It's a fantastic homebrew club we have here in Portland. Cool. So what is it about homebrewing that keeps you at it? The artistic part of it, yeah. and it's like cooking in the kitchen. Every recipe can be unique and different, and then you put your own little flair and touch on it. And then the social aspect of sharing it with your friends. Yeah, man. That's, to me, that's like one of the best parts. Yeah. I, I, and I will always argue that it's like, you know, you can go and you can, you can tinker away in the garage and you can make something. Like, you can go and be a, the, the best birdhouse builder in the world, but people are going to get sick and tired of your birdhouses. But if you're a great brewer, nobody gets sick of your beer. Yes. It's a great way to bring the neighborhood together. <laughs> yeah, that's true, man. And you're the most popular guy there, no doubt. Yeah, that's what I hear. So, so tell us a little bit about how you brew. Well, I brew five-gallon system. I brew on a Blickman system, three-tiered mm -hmm. system. Um, most of the beers that I brew are ales. I have recently, in the last year, have gotten engaged doing lagers, which I really, really enjoy. Yeah, there we go. Uh, so, uh, for those of you listening, that's a train. Yeah, <laughs> we, it, the hair of the dog is right on the train track, so yeah. expect to have some fun noises uh, periodically, right. unless Denny well, works magic. Yeah, we'll hope, we'll hope that either I can take it out or we can overcome it here. So, um, how long have you had your Blickman system? Well, I've had the Blickman system for probably six years. Oh, so pretty much since you started brewing. Since, yeah, I was probably in my 15th batch of beer before I started using the Blickman system. Before that, I had one of the basic tur turkey burners in, mm -hmm. the, in the garage and um, kind of a mismatch of equipment before that. I've, re I've really liked the Blickman system since I've used it. And I've added on some uh, upgrades over the years, and I'm pretty well where I need to be for home brewing. So did you start off brewing extract, or did you jump right into all grain? My first batch of beer was on the kitchen stove, and it was a uh, parcel grain. Mm -hmm. So a wow. little bit of specialty grain in the bag, steeping it during the boil. So what was that first batch? It was a uh, American pale ale. And how did it turn out? It turned out fine. Um, I kept one bottle in the refrigerator way in the back as a reminder, and pulled it out about a year later, and it still tasted okay. So it, cool. And it was the only batch of beer that I ever brewed that I bottle conditioned, actually, because after that I went to forced carbonation. <laughs> wow, man, you just jumped in with both feet. I was yeah, say, I yeah, you beat my record. My record was I made six batches, and then I went to kegging. And I always tell people that if I'd had to keep bottling my beer in order to have beer, I would have stopped brewing at some point relatively sure. quickly. But yeah, so you, be, you beat me on the land speed record to Yeah, really, man. I was slow. It took me a couple years, but uh, finally a friend who was getting out of brewing gave me his kegging system, and it's like the first time I did it, I was wondering why I even messed around with the bottles. I found one of these nice uh, four-tap kegerators on, face, on, on Craigslist and it, early enough that got me right into uh, kegging beer. 
horse wow. carbonation. So it, it worked out nice. I got kind of tired of waiting for the 10 to 15 days or two weeks or whatever it was for the natural carbonation to take place. And I'm impatient. I like to drink my beer. Me too, man. Yeah. I can relate to that really well. Well, and, and my problem is always, it's not that I'm so much impatient. It's the fact that my laziness catches up with me. And so I have things like festivals and parties that I have to go to that I have to have beer for. And yeah, I kegs saved my life because it's like two days before the party, and I'm like, oh shit, I gotta go fresh beer keg. <laughs> That's right. Carbonate. Done. Good. I have beer. <laughs> I will set beer down for a while to condition before sometimes I actually carbonate it. Right. I do that with some of the, my my bigger mm -hmm. beers. So. so, what's your favorite thing to brew? Do you have a favorite thing to brew? My favorite style is basically any kind of stout, mm -hmm. closely followed by the barley wines. All right. Well, and then that brings us into kind of the natural segue of. Part of the reason we're talking with you is that, uh, well, okay, I would say that we did this on purpose, but we didn't. <laughs> uh, you just won uh, uh, this past year at the NHC uh, a medal. And what was the category? Strong Stout. Who was the sponsor? You guys were the sponsor. Hey. <laughs> Fair yes. And we were, it's, it's cool, man. It was our first sponsorship, and we love doing it, and we're going to keep doing it. And I think it's so cool that somebody that we can actually sit down with won it, you know? Uh, so congratulations, by the way. Thank you. I'm uh, still excited about it. I, you you have every right to be. Oh, yeah, because I mean, yeah, winning, winning a gold at the NHC is a pretty impressive little feat. You know, it's not easy. So why don't you tell uh, the listeners a little bit about the beer that ended up winning a gold? Like, has it got a name? Is it well, the, the name parameters? of the beer was uh, Chaos. I, named I love it. it. I, it's a... I'm not sure exactly how I came up with that name, but it was a it was a, a lot of complexity when you brew a, a big imperial stout. When I was picking the beers for NHC, I originally had picked a younger imperial stout, and as I was getting ready to label all the bottles, I opened up a, a case I had back in the corner of some older imperial stout that had been aging for 14 months. Mm. So I refrigerated one, tried it, and said, wow. This is a lot better than it was a year ago. <laughs> I'm going to use this beer instead of the original right Imperial Stout, and that's what I submitted. I called my lost bottles. I had six, only six bottles left of that beer, so I needed five for NHC, and, oh, man. I, and I submitted it. That was a... Um, Serendipitous. Well, and, and, a, and a hell of a gamble, too, to take, your, uh, take five of your last six. Um, it, I mean, I, I lost... One time I won a Best of Show with a barley wine, that I discovered basically hiding in my closet. And it, was, and it was a beer that when I originally brewed it, I didn't like it. Mm -hmm. yeah. And yeah, but I did the same thing that you did where it was like, eh, oh, hey, what's that? And yeah, sometimes that, uh, sometimes that idiotic, accidental loss of things can turn into something gold. Well, the aging really, really helped the beer just balance out. Right. So how, how big of a beer, you know, can you kind of give us the, like, the general parameters on, on? It was roughly about nine and a half ABV. So, how about a rough overview of the recipe? I, it, it, it's your typical imperial stout. I used to, a, a base malt. Uh, I actually believe I was best western. Mm -hmm. And then I used the specialty grains with the roast and chocolate. And I used some cocoa nibs and kind of like dry hopping it with the cocoa nibs at the end. Really? I did, did it really come through as chocolate or did it just kind of intensify the flavor? It just added a nuance. I didn't want the chocolate to be overwhelming for the style of imperial stout, right. otherwise it wouldn't fit the style. Mm -hmm. um, a, a little black patent, a little brown malt. So, uh, what, what yeast did you use, do you remember? 
for the Imperial Stout, I like the neutral yeast, so I used the white, I've been using White Labs yeast, mm -hmm. and it was the uh, 002 White Labs, the, the basic uh, California ale yeast. Okay. I used that for a lot of my American type stouts. Did you have any like fermentation issues, or did everything go smooth for you? No, no, I, when I brewed that beer, I was kind of doing kind of like a, uh, Cooler with I, I had the carboy in a in a tub with a towel and the fan. I was kind of oh, yeah. doing that uh, old-fashioned way of cooling it. I, I had my house kind of cool, so I keep the house at 68 degrees. My wife kind of complains sometimes, especially when she's <laughs> running around in the summertime with a sweatshirt on because I got the air conditioning down. But and I, I'm able to control it underneath 70 degrees within two degrees doing that. Wow, that's Sweet. great, man. That, that works. And, and I'm only worried during the height of the crowding when it's really starting to build a lot of temperature to yeast. Mm -hmm. I don't want it to spike. Right. I want to keep it below 70, and then once most of the carousing is done, 70, 80% into the fermentation, it's just sitting out in the house at 68 degrees, just finishing up. So I'm able to keep it in that really small range of 67 to 70. Oh man, that's great. It, just, it takes a little bit of attention the first three days to know, do that, though. I spent, I spent the first 15 or 16 years I was brewing doing exactly the same thing, and I found exactly what you did. It yeah. works, it just... It requires attention. You know? I guess you call it swamp cooler kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, kind yeah, of deal. yeah. And, you know, and it's like you, you put it. I mean, for me, it's like I would put in ice packs in the water to cool it down. If I needed to warm it up, I'd stick an aquarium heater in the water, and it was effective. But it was a pain in the butt. And uh, it's a pain in the butt, but I have to really keep on it to make sure it works. Yeah. Well, see, and I think there's actually some value to the more manual sort of controlling type thing, like what we're talking about here. Because to me, I find that when I have to do that sort of work, I stay engaged with the product that I'm making, right? I'm, I'm staying engaged yeah, with right. the beer. Yeah, right. You're basically checking on your beer once or twice a day, you Yeah. Know? And if for, for whatever reason, I don't know if it's an actual thing or if it is, you know, some sort of weird mental effect on my part. But I feel like when I have, when I have a part of the process that requires me to come back and revisit and did, check in again... I feel like I'm doing something better with my beer than if I just throw it in a fridge and go away for two weeks. It's the uh, extra love. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's weird and screwy, but it is what it is, right? And I didn't have a dedicated refrigerator or, or ice chest to right. go ahead and do my ales in um, at the time. But yeah, I assume if you're doing lagers now that you have Yes, I am like using lagers. I jumped into lagers last summer. I uh, invested in... Because I'm still only doing five gallons, I invested in a brew jacket. Mm. Oh, yeah. And I've been using that. I mean, I actually ferment in a closet, closed up closet downstairs. Wow. I keep, I can dial it in, it'll keep it within one degree all the way down to the upper 30s. All right. And uh, just for everybody out there, uh, the brew jacket, and I'm trying to remember, it, it's basically a, it's a big insulated, uh, zipped up jacket that goes around a it's carboy. A, right? Yes, yes, you have a plastic carboy. Um, with the insulated jacket, and on top of it is a head device similar to a heat sink that you would have on your PC chip in your computer, where it has a fan that spins on top and and then submerged into the beer right. is the heat sink shaft. Right. Yeah. And that's the will pull the heat out. Right. Okay. Yeah. 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 yeah I have a I have a friend who uses those and really really loves them. Yeah. And that's able to me to get finally get into loggers. I've always wanted to do loggers, but didn't have the space for it in my garage for another refrigerator. 
or ice jazz. And so, and, and I was going to ask, the the big thing that got you moving into loggers was being able to figure out just the mechanics of doing it with like the brew jacket device and that. And I really wanted to expand my brewing techniques into loggers. Uh-huh. I didn't want to just stay in ales. Loggers are they take more nuance, they take more temperature control. And um, I really like some of the, the lagers that are out there in beer styles I've never brewed. So part of being a brewer is to start brewing additional styles and learning. Right. And I just wanted to develop my skill set that way. So what was the first lager you brewed? A uh, Municellus. <laughs> Not right. surprising, man. That's uh, that's a real favorite a- of everybody, it seems like. And, and, and how, did, how did that Hellas come out? Were you happy with it, or? Yeah, it, it it turned out well. I brewed it in late May, and I got it all conditioned and ready to go by late July. Time to enter the Oregon State Fair, and it medaled there. So <laughs> not bad. I man. was pretty happy with that. Yeah, really. Yeah, I can uh, I can only imagine. Hey, look, that beer won a medal. Oh darn. <laughs> I'm unhappy now. So, uh, any any aspirations towards uh, going pro? I've had that question a lot, and <laughs> I've got kind of mixed feelings on it. One is I like to keep my hobby fun. Yes. I um, I don't want to make it a 24 by 7 job. Um, I'm actually, look, I'm just a few hours, from ax- a few years from actually just retiring, period. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm looking just retire, and then I can, make, you know, enjoy the hobby more. So going professional right now is probably not the right direction for me. So there's three of us, because Drew and I often say we're the only two homebrewers who don't want to work in or open a brewery, so I'm glad to know that there's another one of us too, man. Well, you know, I have so much passion for the hobby right now, I, I just want to maintain that passion. Yeah, that's that's where I'm at too. Uh, and let me, let me warn you, I, uh, I retired about three or four years ago. And suddenly I have three new jobs between this and the writing and all that stuff. So be careful, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, when we, when we first started doing the podcast, or before we were talking about it, I, I pitched it out there to people to say, this is my way to keep Denny from uh, dying after he retires. Keep him busy. <laughs> keep, keep him busy, yeah. yeah. Really. Well, this is an extension of your 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 roots of homebrewing. Yeah. And it, yeah. and I mean, and, and it's, you know, and... and the, the, I don't know why I'm talking about us, but really the, the issue is like trying to, to make sure that it doesn't become a job, you know? Um, and so far, so good. So far. All right. Uh, now, we've talked a little bit about your stouts. We've talked about your loggers. I, I have to ask the question. Okay. My favorite question, which is every brewer says they have a philosophy. So omitting, uh, omitting the word balance... Describe your philosophy of beer making. My philosophy? Mm-hmm. Without using the word balance. Without the word balance. Okay. <laughs> there you go, man. To me, it's creativity. Ah. It's creativity. I'm always looking to do something a little different. Um, I'm never really happy with all my my recipes, so I'm always looking to improve. And I make, I'm always changing the recipe up slightly to see what the result is going to be. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not successful, other times it's very successful. But I I like the creativity, I like to keep that going. I don't like cookie cutter recipes where I brew the same thing over and over and over again. I want to continue to develop experimental side of it. Right. All right, so we were just talking about uh, recipe design and balance, uh, and then you also described the, the idea of creativity and always kind of striving to change something up, 
some things work, some things don't work. Can you give us an example of something that you did that you were really super happy with how it worked, like a change that you made? A change that I made? Yeah. A lot of it has to do with a lot of my stouts. The uh, way I work with the chocolate, the wood, the bourbon, fruit, variations of that. I've really been pleased with the results I've had. Um, one of my uh, more frequent or more, more recent uh, successes was I brewed a Kolsch. Mm-hmm. And the uh, first time I ever brewed the Kolsch, it's the first time I ever used strawberries in brewing. Mm. A very nuanced fruit. Mm-hmm. So I, I made a strawberry Kolsch and it did really well. And it got selected this year for the Woodmers Collaborator. So <laughs> it was my first shot. I was very excited. Most of the time I send something to that competition that's kind of big bodied, kind of heavy and dark. So I wanted to get outside my comfort zone, mm-hmm. so I, try, I tried the Kolsch. And it worked. And put some strawberries in it. Uh, and for the listeners who don't know, uh, Woodmere works with the Oregon Brew Crew every year. Major sponsor of our club. Right, and and, and basically the, the idea is there's a competition that they run, and they select winners out of it, and sometimes, most of the time, they take those winners, and they brew those beers, and they actually release them commercially in usually like a big bottle format, right? They will, at, some, some of the beers do get released in bottles. So you'll find them all around Portland on tap handles for different events, mm-hmm. the Holiday Owl Fest, Oregon Brewers Fest, other releases around town at their tap room. So you were saying you had an interesting story about Hair of the Dog and why we're here today. Well, the reason I wanted to come here is because the Hair of the Dog was really my wow beer. Actually, when I moved to Oregon about 15 years ago, I wasn't even drinking beer. Really? I wasn't a beer liker, connoisseur. I was only familiar with some of the, the macro brews that mm-hmm. I wasn't too enthusiastic about. And I was on the internet one Sunday and Googled breweries in Portland because I had recently been at a McMinimins and really enjoyed myself. Right. I watched, so I picked out a name that sounded interesting. It was Hair of the Dog. Yep. So I drove down there Monday morning. They had a different location at the time. That was the one in the scary warehouse? In the scary the, warehouse yeah. by the industrial area with all the train tracks and the <laughs> GPS would never work and it, it was kind of odd. Yeah, I got, I got lost trying to get there a couple yeah. of times in the, in the old days. So I... I I got there and I knocked on the big metal door and the window opened up in the second floor of the warehouse and Alan here stuck his head out and said, what do you want? I said, I kind of hesitated, said, I'd like to buy a case of Adam. I heard it was a good beer. He, he came down, opened the garage door. Not, before that, the most I probably ever spent for a case of beer was $20. So I was expecting, I got 70 bucks in my pocket, I'm gonna walk out of here with three cases. No. Well, I'm glad, one, I'm glad I brought bought the, the cash because it was a bit more than $20 Yeah, I bet it was. So I, 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 I bought that case of Adam. I took it home. I set it on the garage floor and waited for my wife to come home to see if she'd even notice it because she's never even seen me buy a case of beer before. <laughs> and uh, I went through the whole explanation. This is my first bottle conditioned beer. I've never had a bottle conditioned. I'm going to drink one beer a month for two years and see how it ages and keep track and logs. And uh, she just kept nodding her head, okay, okay. But that turned out to be my wild beer. It, when I went to that brewery and I had that, that bottle of Adam, it just blew me away. Yeah. I said, I have to look into craft beer more. And then about a week later, I found Belmont Station, which is the oh, biggest, the oh, biggest yeah. beer store in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And I just, uh, I went you, down you, the you, rabbit you, hole. <laughs> I never came back. Next thing you know, you're, you're in the middle of all these cases of bottles of beer I, and yes. kettles and, and, wait, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> 
It's fantastic craftsmanship here. A lot of boutique beers. Mm -hmm. Adelin does refuses to go big. He wants to stay specialized and stay focused on his core beers. Um, the tap room they have down here is awesome. Yeah, it's Ac really gorgeous. Access to the beer is much better. Sure. Well, so I'm curious, though, did your case of Adam last for two years? It did not last. However, <laughs> I, I bought that case in 2008, and I still have one bottle left. I refuse to drink because I keep it in my my cellar refrigerator, and I say, I'm not touching this beer. I can look at it and say, this is the beer that got that, me that's started. That's your totem, in a way. That's my totem. It's not going away. Well, so now, if that's, if that's your totem, have you ever tried to make uh, an Adam? Yeah, probably the fifth beer I ever brewed. I tried to make uh, what I thought would be a clone of Adam, and it, obviously fifth beer, it wasn't quite right. <laughs> it was very drinkable, but it wasn't Adam. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I know that a lot of people have tried to, to brew some something like what Air of the Dog makes. And very few people have had a lot of success. And I, I don't think that, uh, that Alan is particularly secretive about anything. I think that it's just that he knows how to do it and other people don't. Uh, I, think, uh, I think the magic lies in Alan's mystical little soup kettle. <laughs> yeah. The soup kettle for boil cut. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, the, for listeners who have never been to Hair of the Dog, it, Alan literally, at least in the old days, I don't know about currently, but when I visited the brewery, it was a steam jacketed four barrel kettle that had been used for boiling peas for Campbell's soup. Oh man, that's great. And it's still back there and it's still used. See? Wow, that's great. There, there you go. That's, that's awesome. Good. By this point in time, that kettle has now built up knowledge, you know, <laughs> as, as the old timers would say. All right, um, so going back to creativity and things that, uh, that you've worked on, we talked a little bit about things that you felt were successful. Was there something that you did that it was your attempt to be creative that you felt like it was just a terrible, horrible mistake that should never be repeated ever again and you want to warn the rest of humanity about? Well, honestly, I've, I just brewed my uh, 114th batch of beer, but I haven't had any that were drain pours. Wow, that's good, man. Um, some I brewed were not within style, mm -hmm. but they were still drinkable yeah. and they still tasted good. I've, however, I recently had a brew day where attention to detail is really important. I had two beers lined up. One was an ale, one was going to be a lager. I had the grains set up for the, the grains for the ale, the grains for the lager. I was going to brew one after the other. Well, when it came time to brew the lager, I grabbed the grain for a Weizenbach. <laughs> I was instead of brewing a Municellus, it ended up uh, grabbing the grains for Weizenbach and didn't realize it. I and when I put it into the uh, mash tun and realized two minutes into it, it doesn't smell right, doesn't look right. I realized I made a really big mistake because I just put all this beer with all this wheat into the kettle without any rice holes. <laughs> I've got the wrong yeast. I've got the wrong amount of water measured out, and I had it was a mess. Stuck mash, mm -hmm. uh, terrible flavors, wrong yeast, under attenuated. Uh, so that was a drain pour. I tried to age it for six, seven, eight months later and see if it improved. It did not improve. So, yeah, I grabbed the wrong grain. Attention yeah. to detail. Yep, that's true, man. Uh At least that one's a fast one. Yeah. Um, we still talk about that on brew days with my neighbors when they come help. I have a really nice neighborhood with a couple guys that are retired. Yeah. And they love to come over and help clean pots, 
Whoa, you I, lucky wait, guy. So I am they not actually, by myself. They actually come over and actually do work? They come over and do work. So and it's well, cleaning work. And it's cleaning, scrubbing the mash tub, scrubbing the boil pot. I, so, I, those are good neighbors. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, I, uh, I think I could, we could throw a poll out there to the universe and say, hey, how many people who have come over to help you brew have actually helped you brew? I mean, like, I swear to God, I have people come over to help me brew, and it's like, yeah, they came over to help me drink. Yeah, right. <laughs> Well, that's part of the incentive for them is, you know, partake in what's on tap. I have a friend of mine, Tom. He's probably been at 95% of my brew days. That's It's all wonderful. volunteer time. So it's really nice to have that support. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry. I'm jealous. I want your neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Um, so we talked a little bit about your creativity, your strawberry Kolsch. Uh, and obviously you've played around a lot now. You said 115 batches, was it? 115. All right. So a fair number of uh, batches now under your belt. Uh, what sort of common wisdom about brewing do you think is wrong or overinflated in terms of people's concerns? Hot aeration. Hot aeration? Hot yes. aeration? Yep, that's a, that's a I don't believe in that. Never had any problems. Although it's, all, it's in all the earlier books about home brewing basics and be careful not to do that. Mm -hmm. It does, I find that's... Not true. Well, and, and now, that's and, a very common one, you know. There's a lot of people who. Well, but what's funny is that we are now starting to see that sort of swing, uh, swing back to some people being concerned about it with the whole Lodo uh, idea that's happening. And, so, uh, it, it is curious because, yeah, I, I think it, it was Charlie Banforth who said, you know, like, look, you have to have so many things else sorted out correctly in your brewery before HSA is ever going to be a worry for you. I'd say sanitation is number one. Everything needs to be cleaned right away. Don't get something dirty and let it sit for a couple hours. Clean it as soon as you can. Get it rinsed and washed. Keep it. Keep cleaning as you brew. Don't wait to do all your cleaning at the end. Do it throughout the brew day. It'll be easier for you and less work and less problems of infection. And recently, a wow factor I had is temperature that I pitched my yeast in. Because for years and for many, many dozens of batches, I always would bring, I, I do a yeast starter and I crash it in my refrigerator, but I would decant it and warm it up in the house to approximately what my uh, temperature is of the wort at the time after I've cooled it. Then I, came, then I found out that imperial yeast does it completely different. On their yeast, they say pitch it straight from the refrigerator, 35 degrees, right out of the can, put it in. I said, you got to be kidding me. This works? It really works. That's the only thing I've done for the last 15 well, and, and, years. And it works amazingly. Yeah. And I've been doing that now, whether I use Imperial yeast or White Labs. Yeah. I just pitch it pretty cold. I don't pitch it higher than the work. I always make sure it's colder than the work. That's, and that is the key, man. Colder yeast and the warmer work is always a good thing. So, Explain to me, what do you think the benefits are from uh, from doing that as opposed to what you had been doing? What do you see different now? I, the benefit to me is uh, one less thing to worry about on right. brew day. Yeah. Right? So I'm not worried about getting the yeast within a couple degrees of the wort. I, mm -hmm. it's, the less things you have to worry about, the more focused you are on the key elements of, mm -hmm. of brew day. That's and right. that's easy to, to manage that. Okay. Uh, and you just mentioned Imperial, which is a local yeast company here. They're known for these uh, wee little tiny cans of uh, yeah. yeasty love. Right. Pretty, uh, pretty awesome product. We got, we got a chance to play around with it. But uh, all right. Uh, so that, uh, I think that covers an interesting discovery that you've made because you found that this works better for you. 
Now, I, I will ask, since you're kind of all about paying attention to detail, even with your helping crew that's helping you keep things clean as you're going, uh, what, what's your take on drinking during the brew day while you're brewing? Because Lots of water. We don't have any beer until after the boil started. And with lots of water and food. You got to have food there. We always make sure we have food, we have pizza, we have something we're eating right. all day long. Right. Right. See, and, and that's very close to how I am. Like, I know Denny will typically say, no beer until everything's done. And I'm very much like, I don't have a beer until the boil's going, my fermenters are cleaned, and everything's set. So at that point in time, I'm on autopilot, right? You know, at that point, I've got everything. I know exactly what I need to do. And the reason I don't drink until I'm all done is because of my really intense laziness. And if I'm drinking while I brew, then by the time I'm done, I don't want to do any of that remaining cleanup. I'm, I'm like you in that I clean as I go. So that by the time I'm mm -hmm. done brewing, I've got like my kettle to clean and the chiller to hose off, and that's about it. I got most of the hoses are rinsed out yeah. before I go ahead and do my the mash, deeper cleaning My mash tun is all done and ready mm -hmm. to go. But still, you know, if I've been drinking while I'm brewing, I get to down to the end and I look at just even these couple things I got left to clean. It's like, screw it, man. I'll do that later. Yeah. And then okay. days go by before I get to it. Another lesson learned is recently, a couple brew days ago, I had 10 people over on brew day. Oh. And sometimes you have too many distractions. So if you have too many people helping you out or too many people just talking in the background, not paying attention, then you can lose focus. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Right. So keep it manageable. Keep your help manageable. All right. Well, and then let's talk ingredients, because obviously, you know, with all the beer stuff that you've been doing, you, you have ingredient focuses, I, uh, I would imagine. What's your favorite malt? And what do you like to use as malt? That's part of my experimentation. I'm using all kinds of base malts from mm -hmm. different companies. Uh, the homebrew shop that I go to carries a vast amount of hops and malts. Mm -hmm. So I really don't have a favorite malt, to be honest with you. I've been using many of them. Uh, chocolate malt, I love chocolate malt. Do you uh, have a particular chocolate malt you like? I like the wheat chocolate malt. Mm -hmm. I like using chocolate wheat malt. Oh. Right. How about hops? You got a favorite hop? I like Willamette a lot. Recently I've used some crystal that I've really enjoyed. And I like I like the old standard uh, um, Cascade. So, in other words, you're right in the traditional line of Oregonian hops. I was going to say, man, that's that's about as Oregonian as you can get there, yeah. you know? <laughs> now, I'm not really into big, bittering beers with mm -hmm. a lot of bitterness. I like the hop aroma and flavor more than I like the bittering. Mm -hmm. um, to me, that's balance, um, palate balance, and, and not destroying my palate. That way I can have a few extra beers or try different beers. And, not, uh, and, and, and appreciate each one. Right. So, so are you saying then that you, uh, you've broken from Northwest tradition and aren't an IPA? Uh... Well, I uh, really enjoy East Coast IPAs as much as I enjoy West Coast IPAs. I enjoy English IPAs as much as I enjoy American IPAs. I, I, there's, a lot of, there's a lot to be said for a nice supporting malt backbone to, to any beer. There you go. Right on, man. All right, uh, last couple of questions here. Uh, what is, uh, what is something that you wish that more people would explore or drink you know, that, that you feel like they're not? Mm. 
Well, for I, for each person, there's beers that they they've never tried, and whatever those beers are, you should try them. There's some folks that only drink lagers or drink pilsners, and they should try something a little different. Um, just w drink outside your comfort zone a little bit and experiment, because there's always the next beer down the road you don't think you're going to like, you may like, and maybe a buddy of yours told you that, oh, this beer's like this and you're afraid to try it. Mm -hmm. Don't let the, uh, the big beers of the industry scare you away from the traditional styles, those same styles that are on the craft brew side. Right. They tend to come with more flavor, more complexity, more depth. So in other words, drink it all. What's it, what's it, what's it going to cost yeah, you to have a beer? Yeah, variety is the spice of life when it comes to beer, especially yeah. the older styles, the historical mm -hmm. styles. Try some of those. Try some of the... I've recently fallen in love with nice German lagers. I find them very, uh, very engaging and very crisp, dry. I love the backbone, the malt yeah, backbone. It's out. interesting, too. I, it seems that as brewers become more experienced, they kind of gravitate to, to lagers and stuff like that, partially because of the, the increased skill level that it takes to make them, and partially because they're just easy drinking compared to some of the stuff you start out on. You know? and, and honestly, I did start out with a lot, a lot of high-gravity beers. Mm -hmm. I think we all High do. ABV, I want the big punch for every beer, right? After a while, you just get burned out on that, and you want more more approachable styles that you can drink, and your friends will enjoy, and your family will enjoy. Right. Um, I got a brand new beer I'm going to bottle later today. I brewed my first Schwartz beer. Oh, nice. And uh, how did I find out about Schwartz beer? I'm a beer judge, so I'm, I'm judging a competition a couple months ago, and I was judging Schwartz beers and fell in love with the style. Yeah. Said, this is a style I want to brew. It's a great style, man. Black uh, lager. It's, one that, it's very nice. It's one that you don't see enough, you know? Well, and with people recently talking about Sammy Claus, uh, with uh, the whole the thing we were talking about, Dean, who just passed away here in Portland, uh, and Sammy Claus came back up, and that reminded me that we used to have a project to do uh, a Falcon's version of Sammy Claus, and I always used to brew a Schwartz beer to make the yeast cake for that. Ah, so now I've got to go and make a Schwartz beer because I'm going to make some freaking... Falcon's Claws here this year. <laughs> actually, that's actually a really good idea, man. You may have just inspired me to brew one of those. I, I really enjoy them, and I've never made one, so uh, thanks for the tip. <laughs> it's, yeah, the black lager is very, very, very nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Final right. question? Yeah, but two, uh, two more. Uh, any other brewing thoughts that you want to share with the audience? Like, things that you feel are important that people don't pay enough attention to, or things that you just feel deeply passionate about? Uh, be open to suggestions from other brewers. Um, don't think you know it all. Invite people over to brew with you. And it's amazing how you get an outside set of eyes in watching you brew. And they can give you some tips that that you never realized were going to help you out. Everybody has a group. There's no one way to brew a beer. There's Everyone's systems are different. And there's find it, dial in your system, but accept inputs from other brewers to improve yours. Be open to feedback. Mm -hmm. Feedback is, is a gift yeah. when it comes to brewing. And, and I think it's very important if you're getting the feedback, make sure you check your ego. Right? Check your ego at the door because we're all in that, in that garage brewing for the same reason, for the love of beer. Yeah. Not for ego. Yeah, that's right, man. Alright, and then our final question, the one that we always love to close out with. Um, what non-beer thing 
are you obsessed with or consumed by? There's two things I really like doing in the local community, in the local area. I love hiking and backpacking when I can do it. Here in the Northwest, with the mountains, the trails, the woods, the forests, it's fantastic. I like getting out in nature sometimes. Just forget about the beer, get out there and just worry about all the stress here in the city and just head out into the woods for three, four hours and just, just, just uh, you know, relax and let the mind calm down. And the other thing I, I, I do because I am retired Navy and mm -hmm. I was in the submarine service, I volunteer down here at OMSI on the submarine board at, on the Blueback as a tour guide. So I like explaining and bringing kids and adults through the submarine, talking about how a submarine cool. works. So that's, that's some fun that I have too. That's, that's a really cool thing to do, man. Uh, thanks for doing that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. I can't, it, it, I, I've had other friends and other coworkers who have been in the submarine service. And like the whole time, every time they ever talk about it, I just can't imagine being in that sort of space with everybody for that long. Because well, you don't want to be in the submarine service if you're claustrophobic by me. any means at all. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, Drew and I are here at Hair of the Dog in Portland, Oregon. We've been talking to Chuck Macaluso about his home brewing. Thank you so much Thank for your you. time, buddy. It and we totally really have to get some of Chuck's recipes and put them up on the website. Yeah, really. If, if you wouldn't mind sharing a couple of your recipes with us, we'll Not put them all. on the website. Not Great. So everybody check the website. We'll have some of Chuck's uh, maybe award-winning recipes there. So. There you go. All right. All right. Well, thank you, Chuck. Thank you. Man, what a nice guy and what a, what a fun discussion that was. Yeah, and I, I have to admit that was a great way for us to cap off our visit to Portland. Uh, it, we were racing around. Denny and I had done our talk, and uh, Denny was trying to get me to the airport on time. But we had just enough time to be able to grab those uh, couple beers with uh, Chuck and sit down and have a discussion. And who doesn't want to have a discussion about beer before you have to go on an airplane? Yeah, except that I had to uh, to drive back from Portland to Eugene so there I was, sitting at one of my favorite brew pubs in the entire world, unable to drink. <laughs> it's a special kind of torture that I that I involved myself with. Uh, yes, yes, indeed. And uh, one of these days, uh, I'll make you pay for that. Good luck. Somehow, right? All right. Well, hey. Okay. I think it's time for us to go answer some questions or something. I think I think so too. We're going to take a quick break here, so I can try and uh, recover my voice. When we get back, it'll be time for Ask Denny and Drew and some other fun stuff. We'll be right back. Okay, we are back, and it's time for the Ask Denny and Drew portion of the program, where you guys ask us questions, and we see if we can not sound like idiots as we try to answer them. So, uh, most of these are for you today, man, so uh, I'll just let you go for it. Yeah, I don't know. Today would just seem to be a, a Drew sort of day. So, uh, first question comes in from Bob Hickman uh, via Facebook, and Bob's actually a former coworker of mine <laughs> who reached out to me, and he said... Uh, I've been getting a strong off flavor in most of my recent beers. It's something between licorice and violets. Not hugely unpleasant, but overpowering all the same. Uh, does that point to chlorine or an infection or something else? Well, 
So now I actually went out and quizzed Bob on this because, well, naturally I'm going to. And here's the thought process is that licorice to me is uh, a phenol. So that says to me that you either have a chlorine issue uh, uh, or some sort of yeast health issue or possibly an infection. Uh, violets to me, that's a, more of an ester uh, compound. And that's usually actually, I, I usually associate that with hops. Now, in talking with Bob, it turns out that he had gotten some, what I considered to be very common and very bad advice from homebrew shops. And we've talked about this before, but one of them was, if your water tastes fine, just use it. You know, and don't worry about chlorine and all that. Well, stop that. Stop doing that. If you're not, if you're not taking the chlorine out of your water, you're, you're kind of playing Russian roulette. Uh, and you'll eventually end up with the chlorine or chloramine interacting with the malt compounds in your beer and producing some of these sort of medicinal or licorice and is a is a medicinal flavor licorice type flavors and aromas so that was the first part was to tell bob uh, to stop that and then to also go and filter his water or use campton to remove the chlorine and chloramine and also make sure he's using the appropriate sort of hoses and the last part of his question that isn't asked here but was asked later in our conversation was his buckets now smell like violets and licorice so what can you do about it? So my recommendation for that is I find that there's no greater deodorizer of plastic buckets than sunlight. And since we are here in Southern California, my recommendation for that sort of thing is to soak the buckets for a little while with uh, bleach water, rinse them out, get them good, uh, good and rinsed out, all the, all the chlorine out, and then just go and let the buckets sit in the sun. Yeah, empty. Wait, 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 wait. If the problem is chlorine, why would you tell him to put more chlorine in? Well, because the first part is just to make sure you're killed everything in the bucket. Yeah, because- I would, I would, ju- I would just put them out in the sun. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, I, I definitely would not add more chlorine to them. I mean, unless unless you think there's an infection in there. Well, if the whole thing was chlorine from the water, the last thing you want to do is add more chlorine when you're trying well, to get rid of the chlorine. Well, except for the chlorine, the, the chlorine flavor isn't actually what's in the bucket. It's just the, the phenols and the esters. So to my mind, because he's not entirely certain that it is the, the water, the chlorine right. soak is just a good yeah, safety measure just to make sure. And yeah, you rinse it well. Yeah, get rid of it and then let it sit in the sun and let the sun deodorize the buckets and also uh, disassociate the chlorine. So. And, and truthfully, I have to say, I have never found that uh, aromas from a bucket carry over into the beer. But no, you know. Wait, you've never made pickle brow? <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, I haven't because I don't <laughs> use pickle buckets. Uh, I will say I'm, I'm extremely sensitive to chlorine since I've been living with uh, unchlorinated water from my well for the last 22 years. And even the slightest amount just kind of triggers my gag reflex. So oh, There you go. You know, my answer is kind of based right. on that. Next Let's question. Move along. Yep. Next question. It comes from uh, Ruben Rios, who actually emailed Denny about this. It says, uh, I've been reading your book on experimental homebrewing and love it. I'm writing this email because it is the first time I will be using oak chips on a homebrew, and I couldn't find information about this in the book and was looking forward to hearing some tips from you. If this information is in the book, please just point me to the pages. I would like to know uh, your experience with using oak chips. I'm mostly interested in knowing if there's an easy formula to know the right amount of chips per liter and the time they should be in contact with the beer. I've been Googling around and have seen very different answers to this question, but could also get some valuable information from some knowledgeable websites. Uh, Usually the quantity is 0.7 to 3.75 grams per liter, exposure of two weeks approximate. Uh, 
do you think, do you agree with these numbers? In case it makes a big difference, I'm planning to use middle toast French oak cubes soaked into bourbon and the brew is an imperial porter with a 111 OG. Uh, thanks a lot for your time and Merry Christmas. All right, so Ruben actually kicked, uh, Denny actually kicked this over to me because Denny's not much of an oak person. Uh, I am. Not, not much. And the reason that it's not in experimental homebrewing is because it's actually in my first book. Uh, now, I usually don't use uh, chips. I usually use the oak cubes or oak beans or oak nuggets or whatever name somebody's given to it. You know, the bigger pieces of staves. And when I do that, I do one to two ounces or 1.4 to 2.4 grams per liter because uh, it's one to two ounces per five gallons uh, for chips or I mean, for sorry, for cubes that I've soaked. If I'm going to do chips, chips are much, much more profoundly impactful. So I would almost either go a third or a quarter on your initial attempts with this. Because remember, if you go and you add, you know, say uh, 0.7 grams per liter to your beer and you let it sit there for two weeks and after two weeks, the character isn't enough, you can always go add another 0.7 grams. If you add 1.4 grams to start with, you ain't getting the oak back out of there. So you have time with the oak. Now on time... A lot of people differ. I know there are a lot of people out there who like to put their beers on oak for months. You know, it's not uncommon to see people talk about, oh, I have this aged on oak cubes for six months. I'm not a fan of that. I don't think you get the best flavor that way. So I, I tend to stay around the two to four week uh, mark. So I agree on the, the time of exposure. Uh, although, again, with the chips, I'd be a little bit a little bit more careful about continuing to check because I think you'll get a much faster rate of extraction with them than you, than I experienced with the cubes. So hopefully that answers your question. I would start with about 0.7 uh, grams per liter and two weeks. And if it's not sufficient quantity, go ahead and add some more. Okay. And speaking of time, we have time for <laughs> one more. So I'll let you dig down into the mailbag and pick it out. All right. The last question comes from Bill Ranta from Tecumseh, Michigan via email. It says, Drew, you guys are doing a great job on your podcast. You rock. No, Bill, you rock. I'm having a really good time hearing the content. I heard you making it. I heard you mention making tinctures and storing them. Can you elaborate on that for me? I'm thinking of making a tincture for an Almond Joy Stout and wanted to see if you could do that with the candy bar. What other crazy stuff can you make a tincture for? How do you make them? How do you store them? And how long do they last? Uh, hey, one other thing. Would it be safe to put fresh vanilla and orange peel in the secondary? I'm working on a creamsicle golden nail, or would I get better flavors from a tincture? I appreciate all your help. All right. Uh, so how I make tinctures is pretty straightforward. I have a massive collection of mason jars, uh, pints and quarts for this particular purpose. And I simply fill the jar with a mix of the the element I'm trying to extract, and four to eight ounces of vodka. And I usually do uh, one to two ounces of the substrate. So in this particular case, uh, orange peel, for instance, uh, to four ounces of vodka. And I'll let that soak for two to four weeks. Now, some of the stuff I just let soak forever. And then eventually I strain and filter it and store. I keep them in a jar. The, the jars are nicely tight, tightly sealed. And I keep them on the shelf in my garage and I've used tinctures that have been multiple years old. Now, this is with tinctures where I use an alcohol extraction methodology. If I'm making a tea like I do with cinnamon sometimes, because I like to get both a cinnamon tincture and a cinnamon tea to get both aspects of cinnamon, the teas don't last that long on the shelf. 
I wouldn't leave a T in place for more than about a month. Now, Bill asked about making a tincture with uh, Almond Joy candy bars. I wouldn't. Uh, there's a lot of other elements in an Almond Joy candy bar that I don't think would translate very yeah. well in a tincture. I think you got a lot of fat in there that would come across. I'm not a fan of that particular approach. This is where the preservatives, yeah, preservatives, everything else. And so this is where the sort of culinary deconstruction technique comes into play. What I would actually do is think about what's in an Almond Joy. And I would make, in this particular case, I think four different extracts. I would make a cacao nib extract, a vanilla extract to boost the chocolate character, a coconut extract or a tincture to get that coconut flavor in. That's pretty easy. And then the last one would be to make a an almond uh, extract or tincture. And of course, also with the coconut and the almond, very easy to go get a good quality extract for that. I think what Denny, you had recommended in the past, the uh, five star or no. Uh, star K white. Right. Star K white. Star K white makes some great stuff. And then I also am a big fan of Olive Nation. So you could use those as well. But if I was trying to go for an almond joy flavor, that's what I would do. Because those are the, actually the key component flavors that you're trying to get without all the other crud. And then on your yep. question about yep. secondary, I, uh, I would actually say for orange peel and vanilla, yeah, you can totally go and throw those into the secondary and let them soak. The main advantage that a tincture is going to give you is that you can control the amount of dosing that you get uh, at the time that you're going into the package, as opposed to soaking with raw product. I mean, really, when you're soaking an orange peel or vanilla bean in a secondary, you're effectively making just a very dilute tincture because you're still depending upon the alcohol in the beer mm -hmm. to do the extract. Uh, but I think you get a little more control with doing the tinctures separately. Uh, but at the same time, I know one of Danny's ob objections to tinctures is the sort of hotter ethanol characters that you can get. And so if you want to avoid that, you want to get a kind of a softer profile, then yeah, go ahead and put it in the secondary. Yeah, I uh, I put vanilla right into the secondary. If you do that, one thing that I have found is that uh, the vanilla is pretty much one of the first things that will fade in your beer. So start tasting your secondary and leave that vanilla in there until it's just a little bit stronger than you think you're going to want it to be in the in the final beer. But uh, on the other hand, uh, yeah, if if uh, the extra alcohol doesn't bother you. Adding them at packaging time is a much more definite way to get exactly what you want. All right, there you go. I hope that helps, everybody. Okay, I guess it is time for the quick tip of the week, and that's me. And uh, my tip is identify your fermenter. And I don't mean like, hey, that's a fermenter over there. What I'm talking about is give them names or numbers. Uh, I found a number of years ago that I had a really, really low-level infection that was hard to get rid of, and I finally traced that back to using the same fermenter over and over and over again. And I did that by giving my fermenters numbers and writing down for each batch which number fermenter that uh, that I used. And I was able then, if I had a, a, an issue with a batch, to trace it back and uh, see if it came from the same fermenter. And sure enough, it did. Uh, you don't have to give them numbers. You can be creative and use names. Uh, when my wife had her computer animation company, they named all their servers after the seven dwarves. So you could name your fermenters uh, Sleepy, Dopey, Doc, Grumpy, sneezy, uh, sleazy, uh, whatever the rest of the dwarves were. 
Yeah. And, so and I've, anyway, I've I've known breweries out there who name them after dogs and everything else. And I've used yeah. this tech. I've used this technique as well. Like I just recently had. I totally forgot that I didn't sanitize a fermenter as well as I should have after using a brut culture in it. And so the next beer I brewed it, it went from being a uh, double brown to being a double brune. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the bottom line is uh, put some sort of identification on your fermenters and uh, in the brewing notes that I'm sure you always take when you brew, <laughs> just write down which fermenter you used for that batch of beer. It's easy. It's fast. Who knows? May help you solve a problem down the road. All right. And now there you, you have something. Yeah. And you have something other than beer for us this week. Yep. I have two things, one of which by the time this episode drops will have already happened, but you still have a little bit of time to catch up, which is Sherlock is back. Uh, yes. And do you know that in this first episode, John and Mary have a baby? Spoilers. Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, uh, New, <laughs> New Year's Day, as we're recording this, Sherlock will be appearing on PBS on Masterpiece Theater. Uh, it's the usual sort of thing, you know, that British thing where they do three episodes and then leave you hanging for two years. So it's back. Go watch it. Yeah, it's wonderful. And then uh, the other thing that I have to mention is uh, earlier this year, I had mentioned that I was getting back into uh, comic books after years and years of being away from it because, uh, frankly, I don't like going to comic book stores anymore. It's kind of expensive and I don't have room to store comics, but I like the stories being told. And so I discovered Comixology, which is owned by Amazon, which drops, you know, or makes digital distribution of comics very easy. Well, I just recently discovered the past year's series on Darth Vader that goes into the period of time between him discovering about Luke Skywalker, the destruction of the Death Star in New Hope, and, you know, Empire Strikes Back starting. And it's this whole great saga of sort of evil machinations and political crap going on behind the scenes in the empire and that's really great but the one really cool part was that they also introduced a brand new character dr afra who's kind of like an evil indiana jones and she actually got her own series because she proved to be so popular with readers and dr afra is kind of like again like i said an amoral opportunistic survival type of indiana jones character in the star wars universe and it's great fun. So there you go. <laughs> All right, man. So there's something you can do if you can uh, pull your mind away from beer for a little while. Thanks for listening to the Experimental Brewing Podcast. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, I'm on a whole bunch of different beer forums. You can usually find Drew hanging around on the uh, Reddit homebrewing forum. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes or experiments or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to uh, talk to each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And if you want to leave us a voicemail, don't forget you can now call us at 626-765-1-A-L-E. That's 626-765-1-A-L-E. Right. So if you don't want to actually email us with one of your questions, just drop it there, and uh, you'll get your voice on the show, and uh, maybe you can stump us because it ain't all that hard to do. So, until next time, remember to always brew experimentally.
or Brewacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Hey.